we've made a big mistake to take learning away from the planet and put it in its own special box, you know. Learning's escaped, that's what's happened. It's sneaked out under the door and the kids are gone with it. There's nothing like being in the planet to be aware of the planet. So much pollution air! So much pollution air! A positive thing that has come out of this global crisis is that there's so much more collaboration between students and teachers around the world. We ran a project called BYOP, Bring Your Own Plant. Unbelievable results. We were getting, you know, ADHD cut by three quarters. Turns out it wasn't the kid that had the attention deficit. It was the environment was deficiting their attention, you know. The British Council presents the Climate Connection. La Connexion Climatique. Die Klimaconnectivität. La Connexion Climatica. Climate Action in Language Education. This is Episode 5 Greenhouse Classes. Hello and welcome to The Climate Connection, a British Council podcast focusing on climate action in language education. I'm your host, Chris Souton. This is Episode 5 Greenhouse Classes in which we look at how teachers can create classroom environments which are positive, inclusive and ecologically friendly. The Climate Connection In this episode, unlike our first four episodes, we'll be talking in detail to just one guest, Professor Stephen Heppel. Stephen is a globally recognised expert in online education and learning spaces. His work on hundreds of projects with governments, international agencies, businesses, schools and communities has seen him established as an international leader in the fields of learning, new media and technology. The Climate Connection In our podcast series so far, Stephen, we've talked a lot about the environment more generally and on a wider scale. I wondered if you could share some of your ideas and your thoughts on the classroom environment and why that's so important for learning in general, but also how it can specifically help language learning in particular. I think a lot of folk know me. I've been a professor for over 30 years, you know, (laughs) officially old. And um you know, with the, the Internet of Things, with big data, with cloud-based information, and we started looking seriously at the actual learning space itself. We thought we'd be clever and build some little boxes that captured as much information as we could find, because I think every teacher listening to this, every student for sure will tell you that, you know, if the classroom's a bit hot, it's soporific, you know, <laughs> and if it's, um, you know, if the CO2 levels are a bit over the top, you know, they'd probably say it feels a bit muggy, you know, they find it really hard to concentrate. So we started with a really big literature survey of what do we know about the brain anyway, and it dawned on us that the, the parallel really was with English sport, where, you know, I think at the Atlanta Olympic Games, we won one gold medal, Vincent and Redgrave. Back in those days, we were a top nation at sitting down sports, you know, any sport, <laughs> where, you know, so cycling, rowing, sailing, horse riding, you know, Formula One, we're a top nation, but... As soon as we stood up, we were rubbish. So well, one of the things we realized, I think, back in the 90s was that doing a better version of what you used to do wasn't enough. What you needed to do was look at every detail and that whole aggregation of marginal gains that propelled the cyclists. I think in Rio, every single cyclist that went to Rio came home 
with a medal. Doing 100 things 1% better, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit simplistic to say if you do 20 things 1% better, you'll be 20% better, but <laughs> you sure as hell will be better. And we'll come to numbers in a bit because the numbers are quite scary. So to our surprise, really, nobody had really done this work. The research data was everywhere. You know, the, um, the data on noise was very good and a lot of it came out of car design because they were worried about the impact of car tyre noise and um, stereo systems and blah, 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 you know. <laughs> At what point is it so loud you can't concentrate? It turned out to be not very loud. You know? So we collected all that and thought, okay, let's look at classrooms. Let's start measuring the, the learning space. And um, it was a bit of a OMG moment because, first of all, I think we went into, I think it was 83 or 86 examination rooms. And we didn't find one that wasn't damaging the children's prospects very often profoundly. But worse still, we found incredible unfairnesses because, you know, kids in the dark corner, badly ventilated, were always going to do three, three and a half percent worse than the kids in the, the well-ventilated light corner. So we thought, looks to the mercy, you know, this is bad. And then the more we started looking at the data, the worse it got. So we started off looking at CO2 and we thought then back in those days, you know, we thought two and a half or 2,200 ppm parts per million was like a lot of CO2. Nowadays, we know that a thousand is a lot. So the, the point at which damage occurs turns out to be much sooner than we thought. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting here on the East Coast. There's a snowdrift outside the door. The chickens are looking less than impressed. You know? The temperature in my little room here is um, 16 degrees. And we know that 18 to 21 is pretty optimal for learning. So I'm not far off. So then we started looking at the things nobody had really thought about. Humidity, noise rhythms, TVOCs, those nasty smells you get when you glue something or fresh paint or whatever, you know. Um, and we started to see some astonishing things. We're sitting on about five and a half million hours of data now, you know, and we saw some flipping amazing stuff. For example, just within this last year, TVOCs, those volatile organic compounds, have gone through the roof. And of course, it's because of COVID, because people are deep cleaning the classroom. So they are the cleanest desks you've ever seen. But unfortunately, in doing so, they brainwash the kids, you know. So you've got kids who are never going to be ill, but it really doesn't matter because they're, they're walking around like zombies, you know. We found in some mixed secondary schools, the TVOC count went really high just before lunch and we were trying to work out what it was but it was boys spraying themselves with the uh, links you know before going out to you know to hopefully a romantic assignation you know the girls on the other hand had, had opted for washing which i think was probably a better route you know <laughs> so old-fashioned <laughs> yeah so, that's so last century yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the whole thing was full of surprises and then of course we it's no good rushing around shouting out oh you know help help the sky is falling you know what what can we do about it turns out to be really really easy so, for example, we ran a project called BYOP, Bring Your Own Plant, and we had every kid with their own plant. We knew what the best plants were because, luckily, we'd, I'm, I'm doing some work with NASA, which is like everybody would want to do work with NASA, you know. <laughs> I'd always wanted to go to Mars, you know. But it turns out when you go to Mars, you need to take plants with you because they'll convert the CO2 back into oxygen and help things along. And NASA thought, oh, I wonder what the best plants are, so we know what the best plants are. And when we started putting them into classrooms, unbelievable results. You know, Chris, we were getting, um, you know, ADHD cut by three quarters. Kids who'd been on Ritalin. And turns out what was wrong with the kid wasn't the kid that had the attention deficit. It was the environment was deficiting their attention, you know. And um, when we started graphing the difference between not opening your windows in the classroom, opening your windows or opening the door, we found that, of course, if you don't open the windows, you know, on a typical day, 27 kids in a classroom, the CO2 will be beyond the point when it distracts them 
from their learning about half an hour into the day. So teachers will think, I wonder why their classes are always so sharp-eyed at registration, you know, because that's a lot really after that. <laughs> oh, God, you know, you know and, we, and we walked in with, um, obviously we're doing projects all over the place of transforming classrooms. I remember we were doing one, went in with the kids and, you know, it's a one-form entry coastal school, you know, in a kind of interesting area. And you know, I said to the kids, this was in sort of May, I think the year before, coming up to lunchtime, who are the kids who are a bit naughty and they're kind of, you know, just not really on the money and they're kind of looking around and falling off their chair. All pointed to these boys in the corner who all looked a bit shit. Yeah, it's us, it's true. It? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Well, so who are the ones who are kind of bright eyed and bushy tailed coming up to the end of the day when the mums are waiting outside? Hang on, I just got to finish my buffalo, you know. And they all pointed to a mixed group over by. Of course, when we looked at the mixed group who were sharp as, you know, the, luckily the glass was broken in the window. It was nicely ventilated, had a great natural light. There was a LED light above their heads. Ventilation, light, temperature was all right. The boys in the bad boy corner. <laughs> so we swapped them over, you know. Remember one of the girls saying, I've only been here an hour. I, I feel myself going over to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that amazing? Because that, that impact that that can have on a child's school career from the beginning can be yeah. enormous. If they get identified as a difficult child or a troubled yeah. child, and it yeah, could just be the environmental aspect of it, which is the issue. It, it absolutely is. You know, I've stood so many times now in a class with a teacher, drawn a little map on a bit of paper and said, I'll tell you about this later, turned it over. And the class starts and, you know, we're a little way and somebody yawns. And I, I just say to the teacher, didn't notice that one yawning, you know. And then a couple of other staff fidgeting and doing something inappropriate. I turn the bit of paper over and it says, the first kid to yawn is going to be sat there. The first kids to fidget are going to be in that part of it. I mean, it is, it's starkly obvious. And just like with the Olympic stuff, once you realise that there's more to it than doing what you've always done, you know, wow, the eyes open and it goes off. You know, Liverpool Football Club doing pretty well at the moment. Over the last few years, they've got, you know, their head of data has a theoretical physics PhD. And he has 11 full-time data analysts working under him. And I walk into a classroom and people can't even tell me, well, what's the average arrival time? Who's always late? I mean, this is, this is kind of common sense with data, really, Chris. You know, it's, um, if you, if you arrange the room in a variety of zones and the zones, support a sort of carousel of, of pedagogy and I'm going to be conversation with just two of the city over there we're just trying out our conversation skills I've got a little cafe desk over here I'm getting ready to do a presentation and here I've got my head down I'm doing quiet reading and work and as I move from one area to another it all kind of improves and we know that the flow of blood to their brains because we can map it these days with functional MRI scanners their brains are more active if they move within the lesson. I mean, you can see it. One brain's lit up like a Christmas tree. The others, some, I mean, many of us, I think, have said to children before a test, take your time, calm down, collect your thoughts. We now know, you know, they've been better off doing somersaults. You know, it's like musical chairs. Yep. Keep move, keep moving around the room. When the test starts, sit down and write. But, you know, not, not until. However, that variety of seating has a huge impact on punctuality. The kids all arrive really early. They hurry to class because... You've got more choices. You know, if you turn up and the seats are the same and the desks are the same, you've got a seating plan, so I'm sitting next to Chris and, oh, dear God, he's walking. No one wants to do that, no. Obviously, what we've learned from all this is the complexity of that and, and, you know, kids bite onto it and then expect, you know, as you say, nobody wants to just sit in the same seat with the same person. So they arrive late because there's no joy in that. And, of course, Chris, I mean, a big part of this is agency. You know, the kids 
are fascinated by all this. Well, it wasn't me, it was the room, you know. <laughs> and just the but, idea of something as simple as bringing their own plant in, they identify, I can make a difference to my learning. And yeah, well, it's that individual responsibility, but also to the group as well. No, absolutely spot on. And, and we've taken that further because we've, we make them put the plants in a white pot because we know how important light is. I'll come to light in a minute. But, you know, the plants are absorbing light for photosynthesis. So if it's a white pot, they're reflecting light back into the room. But we make each child name their plant. And there's something about it's your plant, you know. They get really excited when their spider plants having babies, you know, and they're getting quite you know, sort of flustered about it all. And they, but they've got skin in the game. And we've had kids who've been poor attenders who, once they've got their own plant, you know, find themselves coming in because they've got family in the room, you know. It's um, and of course the STEM kids make little aren't we know self-watering kits that hang on the flower pot for twenty quid's worth of sensors, and the, you know some of the more turbulent kids try different fluids on the plant. I'm going to oh, weed on mine. I'll see what happens, you know. <laughs> You know, the kind of thing, you know. <laughs> I've tried mine on Coca-Cola. It yeah. don't look very well. You know? But they're experimenting. They're critically thinking. They're reflecting on their environment and their place within it. And I remember my eldest daughter coming home from her GCSE French exam, in which she did dreadfully, despite the fact we spent a lot of time in France, and she's a very good speaker of French. And the reason was the Coomba tape recorder that she was supposed to be listening to, she couldn't hear. You know, it's on the far side of the room. It was knackered. The room was bad. And I said, why didn't he say something? She said, well, it wasn't just me, Dad. It was all of us, you know. And sure enough, all the people in her corner, you know, got a rabbit mark. So the simple things you can do are to try and take out reverberation. So, you know, if you've got a lot of glass in your room, which you need because you want the light, you're looking for lux levels above 500. Um, I'm, I'm building, I'm only building to 1,000 lux. These days you can measure lux with your, your phone and free app. Just go and measure it. I mean, I'm sitting in a... A little officer, I'll, I'll measure this for you while I'm sitting here, you know, and the light levels in here are, you know, pretty good because I'm consciously trying to get them good. So I've got a light meter running on my phone and I'm just going to grab a, so I'm, I'm actually, it's a very dull day. I'm, I'm running at 418 lux and I'm, it should be 500. If I just open the window and shove it outside, dark sky, it is snowing at the moment and I'm, I'm way over a thousand. Wow. So, you know, it's, um, and I'll tell you, if it's a sunny day, we'd, we'd be over 10,000. Most of the classrooms I go into 150 to 200, way too low for the bit of your brain that needs to do language. We've had kids sitting around the floor just shouting at the floor, measuring with a decibel meter. Decibel meter runs on your phone and um, try different covering. What happens if we put a rug in the middle of the floor? Well, you'd be amazed at the difference it makes, or hang a rug on the wall, or um, that all works. And also, I know this is bizarre, but opening the door makes the room quieter. And we've spent a lot of time modeling that. You know, a big room with, you know, 100 kids in, the doors and everything wide open. The kids are quieter. They might have a noisy moment right at the beginning when they all, hello, Chris, good morning. How's your dog? You know, did your dad come home? Oh, sorry to hear that. You know, they're all sort of shouting out across the room. And then they just get on and work. Whereas in a, in a, constrained classroom they're quiet at the beginning because it's boring and then as they get towards lunch they fidget and the noise goes up and down the afternoons usually right off because kids are noisy noisy shut up noisy shut up noisy shut up sort off go home you know that's a, it's a pretty dismal sort of and any which way we measure it closed rooms with the doors shut are noisy and teachers often don't want to open them at the door because it's noisy and they don't want other teachers to know that understandably but take the doors off, you know. One of my favourites, if there are senior managers listening to this, is to just say, look, closing your door is a cry for help. If you, if you have a situation in your room that you can't manage, 
shut your door and a senior manager will come in. That works real good, you know, every time you shut the door. Some clueless <laughs> yeah. deputy leaps in and says, how could I help? Well, yeah. you know, if you're any good, you wouldn't have got... <laughs> make, that mis- make that mistake once and once only, yeah. But it does yeah. keep the doors open, you know, and of course, yeah. with COVID, that gives you the ventilation. With CO2, CO2 is a heavy gas. So if you only open the windows, it only goes out above the windowsill. If you open the doors, it goes out down where the kids' heads are on the desk. So doors open is a great thing for controlling sound and so on. On tempo, bubno. My name is Sayed Kifa Bukhari from Great Creepy. They say the greener the setting, the more the relief. This relief was brought to our school by indoor plants. It all started in 2016 when a parent joined an open door session in our school and shared his feedback stating, the classrooms look heavy and the children are not able to breathe fresh air. Asha ma'am took this very seriously. She had a plan to bring in indoor plants. In order to check if they were purifying the air or not, she installed an instrument called as the Lenometer, made by Professor Steve. To make learning fun and impactful, our school has taken every possible step to create an environment that keeps us close to nature. We have five different indoor plants approved by NASA, which include English ivy, rubber plant, money plant, etc. These plants help in making the overall atmosphere positive. We have 10 plant pots in each classroom get them every day makes our day bright. Our principal Miss Asha Alexander is a keen climate influencer and this is one of her many steps to keep us intact with nature. Thank you. La connexion climatique. According to a recent report by the United Nations, Palestine faces a huge number of environmental challenges including biodiversity, water, land and soil degradation, the depletion of natural resources, urbanisation and waste management. Temperatures are set to rise and rainfall is set to fall. Access to water is a particular challenge, with only 1 in 10 households in Gaza having access to safe drinking water, and more than half the wells in the West Bank drying up in the last 20 years. In this episode from the field, we journey to Palestine to discover how the non-governmental organisation The Hands Up Project is linking climate education and learning English in innovative and interesting ways. The Hands Up Project is a UK registered charity that's been operating for about six years now and what we do mainly is connect young people in schools in Gaza 
and other parts of occupied Palestine. In 2019, we were awarded a British Council Elton Award for our work encouraging young people to create their own short plays. And from this idea, we've now developed what we think is our own genre of theatre. We call it remote theatre. And this is where um, young people are creating plays that can be performed through Zoom. There's a new form of remote theatre, which we call lockdown theatre, where young people are performing plays individually. I mean, performing them collaboratively, but performing them on individual webcams. It's a fantastic way of making a connection between young people. So what often happens is the group of kids in Gaza, say, might perform their play to a group of kids in, say, Spain, and then they'll perform another play back to them. And then this is a kind of springboard to discussion about the issues that are in the plays. There are many wars in air. Humans kill each other. They use bad weapons. Their weapons kill many children. How could this happen on earth? I've seen many poor people, homeless, looking for food. No one looks at them. There is too much food on earth, but many people are still hungry. Welcome to Earth is a play that was created and performed by Mahmoud Kafafi, Rida Amouri, Ahmed Afghani, Abdurrahman Mahdi and Ahmed Abush from Asker Boys Unruwa School in Nablus in occupied Palestine with the support of their teacher. And this play tells the story of a group of aliens who land on Earth in a spaceship and they go around and they have a look at what Earth is like. They notice all the problems, all the environmental problems that there are on Earth and they discuss them and then they have to make a decision about whether they're going to stay on Earth and try and make it better or whether they're going to leave and look for another planet. Well, I was in a big city. There were many cars. They smelled of very bad cars. So much pollution air. So much pollution air. The weather on Earth is getting worse. Because of humans' activities, they cut so many trees. Earth is getting hotter and hotter. And its ice is melting. Wasfi, could you tell us about the context of Asuka Refugee Camp? Like other camps, Asuka Refugee Camp was established in 1950 in the area of the city of Nablus, about five kilometers from Nablus to the east of Nablus. The size of the camp is about 200 square denoms. The people, it's overcrowded. About 15,000 refugees live in this camp. The life of the people there is miserable. So you're an English teacher, but do you see your role as also teaching kids about environmental issues? 
Do you think that it's important for teachers to focus on these issues in the classroom? Yes, of course, and I uh, usually do that. In addition to the topics that we have in the curriculum that we teach the students, I sometimes mention some environmental issues and to talk about it with the students and try to warn them, try to teach them something about the importance of the environment, to pay attention to the environment. So we'd love it at the Hands Up Project if wherever you are in the world, if you tried to make your own version of this play, Welcome to Earth, because I think it's it focuses on issues that are so relevant to anyone wherever you are. If you do manage to make a performance of it, then it would be great if you could present it and perhaps perform it back remotely to the original authors in Palestine or just make a video of it and we could share it on our YouTube channel. It's actually a, a positive thing that has come out of this global crisis is that there's so much more collaboration between students and teachers around the world. I mean, the thing about environmental issues is they're not confined to one particular place and they're global issues and we all know that now any impact that happens on the Amazon or in Antarctica or the Arctic is going to affect all of us in the whole world, whether we live in rich nations or poorer nations or whoever we are, we are going to be affected by these global issues. So it's, it makes sense that students of English in different countries around the world are creating remote theater around the theme of environmental issues. So, what should we do, my friends? Shall we stay or look for life on another planet? And that's beautiful! We will stay here and make another place! And our mother, we love you! The Climate Connection we now rejoin Stephen Heppel to find out more of his insights into creating green classrooms. La connexió climàtica. How, Stephen, can we link developments in the classroom environment with the wider climate crisis? Where do you see the relationship between those two things? Well, I mean, I, I mean, COVID has been horrid because of the number of deaths and so many people um, hideously injured with long COVID. But beyond that, it's been a blessing. And it's been a blessing because it's opened everybody's eyes to outdoor learning again. You know, it seems bizarre that we spend a lot of time inside a classroom. And everybody listening to this will remember a time when they, they did learning out of doors. And it was a memorable moment, you know. It was um, So outdoor learning is really, you know, we've got COVID for the next six, seven, eight, nine years. So, you know, it's not going to be a don't worry back to normal by Christmas. The ministers might dream of that because it's all they know. But the reality is... We're in a different world now, and we are in a different world climate too. So being out of doors, suddenly we're acutely aware of pollution and we're acutely aware of, you know, the CO2 level on the planet is up to nearly 400 parts per million now. It used to be about 270, so that's getting worse. And, um, you know, there's nothing like being in the planet 
to be aware of the planet. We on Brightling Sea, we have a beach school runs on the beach here with her preschool kids, and they're down with little digital microscopes looking at the sand, looking for, oh, there's a, I found a little red spot. Yeah, that's plastic, you know. <laughs> so, really? Oh, no. And those kids, they know the... You know, they know the wildlife timetable better than the local fishermen. Hey, you'd see them sort of saying, oh, I see the baby crabs are in. Oh, really? You know, I mean, because they're there every day looking at all this, you know, and, and I think we've made a big mistake to take learning away from the planet and put it in his own special box, you know, and, and learning's escaped. That's what's happened. It's sneaked out under the door and the kids are gone with it. And COVID's been a, you know, they're a bit like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape and kind of gunning the engine on the bike. They're off. They got away. And but COVID's you, been a conspirator and all that. Yeah, you say a yeah. nice phrase, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's escaped from out of its box. But do you think worldwide it's going to be put back in its box as, as, as no. soon as it's able? Because it no, seems no, to it me won't. there's no. there's a, a systemic belief that you know, learning outside and so on is something you do at primary level. But once you get to the serious aspects of secondary learning or tertiary learning that goes away again and it should be inside a classroom and all those other things so well i know because i've never seen anybody say that phds can only be done indoors and um you know i've had a great track record of phd students and you know they do it where they live and they're outside you know and we know that kind of interesting just putting a covid spin on this for a moment because there's been a lot of complete tosh talked in the media about COVID kids needing to catch up and, oh, you know, heavens to Murgatroyd, they need to be back in the school, you know. But we, we know that the very opposite's true. The kids out there, almost all of them are not all. So there's an equity issue, but most of them have been pursuing lots of things in depth. They've been, you know, looking at rocketry, they're doing baking, they're doing living history, talking to their grandparents more than they've done for a long time. They're... Um, you know, they've really thrown themselves into their learning. And what they've developed are really key third millennium skills of, you know, agility, of um, innovation. Resilience. You know, I think, you know yeah, yeah, resilience. I mean, think about all the things computers can do. Computers never tire. Computers do batch processing. Computers do what they're told. Computers do repetition. Computers do memory. So the last thing we need is a generation of kids who can only do those things. We need a generation of kids who are ingenious and curious and can exactly, as you say, be resilient. And, you know, if I look back, when was the last time we had the generation like that? It was Second World War when all those kids were evacuated for three years and the people bombed them. And heaven only knows what they went through here hiding in the bomber shelters every night in the garden or going down the underground, you know. And yet that lot, that generation, gave us Vivian Westwood and Paul McCartney and Colin Chapman and the geniuses, the engineering, science, music, art, design geniuses that we rebuilt Europe on for 20 years after the war. Well, this generation of kids, with all the things they've learned out of school, are a golden generation. They're our most precious generation. And the sad thing is that we've got... You know, it's not the politicians' fault that they can't see that because they're a generation who've only ever seen the same thing. They've sat in the seating plan. They've done the daily timetable. They've, they've only ever faced certainty. So when they're faced with uncertainty, they say, oh, let's get back to where we get them back in school, get them sat down, get all facing the same way. I'm sure COVID needs that. You know, they've kind of locked onto. That's not their fault. 
but they are stupid you know that's the truth of it, you, know. <laughs> you know and also the the generation that is this golden generation you know before the, there were the few exceptions that Greta Thunbergs and the you know the kids in Hong Kong or whatever who were kind of you know saying they bit about what they thought to happen that's every kid now you know every kid has been given agency they've, they've tasted the difference and they ain't gonna go the genie has gone out of that bottle I've talked to 103 ministers of education in the last 11 months for which I think that some sort of um, medal should be struck, you know. <laughs> and actually, some of them are pretty good, you know. <laughs> I don't have a collective noun, though. Um, but two-thirds of them are saying, here's a real opportunity to build back better. And one-third are saying, I mean, it's kind of what happens around the world. You know, if I go to some countries, they don't look at the cost of education because they know whatever they spend, they'll get it back as a, on the rate of return. You know, Singapore doesn't say how much is that. They say, how many do we need? Because whatever they buy, five years down the track, national income goes back, they get the money back. And then about a, about a third of the world says, how can we do the same but cheaper? Well, do the same but cheaper, got us one gold medal in Atlanta. And, um, you know, it's dead in the water, that approach, it really is. What would you say? Because in my experience of working in the global south you often find actually there's very strong views towards the idea that education should be within a classroom because it feels there is some prestige attached to that especially in environments where education hasn't been something that everybody has done from the age of four on, on onwards what about in those sorts of environments where, where even if it's just a concrete shell with poor ventilation and poor windows but yet people say in this parental pressure institutional pressure saying that's where learning should take place well i mean that's what they've been told and you know if i go to some of the desperate bits of west africa or whatever where you know hugely generous people often stars oprah winfrey or whoever you know, parachuted and they built fabulous schools, you know, but only one or two. There isn't, there isn't one for everybody. And I, I was doing an assembly with some kids in Islington the other day, just in passing, talking about safety. And um, I showed them some of the journeys to school that kids enjoy, you know, the climbing across mountain passes, you know, swinging across a river on a lorry in a tube, blinking hippopotamuses in the river, you know, and, and, you know, just basically two hours of mayhem to get to school. They get to school, they go into that concrete box, they sit down, they learn about terminal moraines. <laughs> there ain't no glaciers in Africa, I tell you. And then they go outside and they battle all the way back. And of course, the learning bit was the journey. You know, if somebody had just said to them, well, look at the flora and fauna and think of the engineering of swinging that rubber tube across the river on the end of a bit of a rope. And, you know, what do we know about conservation of energy and blah, blah. You know, once the learning is grounded in the place you live, they're not going to get you out of that place and put you back in your box. And that's, you know, and there's some interesting politics about all this because roughly every 75 years you get a big change. So the 1800 churches around Europe said, we want everybody to learn put the big book, you know, that's really important because that's about social behaviours, you know, thou shalt not dot, 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 you know. And then 75 years after that, we had the, um, in England, we had the 1870 Act and most of Europe around about then because they had industrialization and they needed kids who could do a bit of maths, tell the time, read a notice that said danger. So compulsory primary education came along. 
75 years after that, you were with that um, wartime generation who have been evacuated. And in England, was a 1944 Education Act and very similar in France and Germany and elsewhere. But it's interesting that the church was driving it and then the employers were driving it. And then after the war, it was families who drove it because they saw the lack of it. And this time around, it's kids who are driving it. But it's every 75 years, somebody's given the baton and told, make it better. And those have been the really big leaps forward for education. And we're right in the middle of one right now. And a few people will go back, but not very many. With regards to, specific regards to learning English in places all around the world, again, going back to this idea of using the environment around you, all those sorts of things, do you see that impact taking place on language learning and English learning in particular? Because it seems to me often it's presented as a, it's a prestigious good. You know, it's about the product of, of gaining an English language ability in terms of grammar, in terms of vocabulary and so on. Do you see these things impacting positively on how English is taught and how English is learnt? Or do you think English is somehow separate from many of these other areas that you're, that you're talking about? No, I, I mean, English has, has the lucky history of becoming that hugely significant language, which in many countries even affects who you're going to marry, who you're going to work with, what opportunities you have. And there's a really interesting question in all this, which is as we go global and live locally, so, you know, I'm talking to three or four countries a day from this desk and yeah you know i live in a little tiny village by the waterfront and i sail a hundred year old boat you know you know so there's a kind of localness to all this and a globalness to this and there's a difference here between working with people on your line of latitude where i can take my project send it to the east coast of america onto the west coast out to hawaii around to where are we japan back through india eastern europe and home and you know while i've been in bed it's been in five five other sort of places or work in my line of longitude where you know i'm having lunch in a minute well probably am actually um and so are they in johannesburg and oh let me show you what i've got oh crikey we haven't got that you know so the, the longitude and latitude workers um and latitude and longitude families for that matter are you know very different styles and approaches and for one you really do need a real-time communication code and i think english is going to be that for a long time for the latitude ones maybe you can get away with you know all sorts of languages because technology is going to help you out and you're not talking in real time i mean we're building a school at the moment in in ireland which is a modeless school it's the first one in the world and we're saying there is no difference between being online and being face to face you know you're the, the group of kids you're working with the collaborative project you're doing the youngster that you're mentoring the pastoral support you've got is the same whether you're there or not and isn't it nice to come in? Your parents go off abroad for two terms. You can go with them and you can still be working with your mates. You can still be doing everything, you know. And, um, you know, you can see education heading that, that way quickly. The thing that becomes important is membership. What do I belong to? Mm. Who is my community? And, you know, communities and membership sometimes need a language. And for now, I think English is very much that placeholder. I could see that being Mandarin not so far down the track too you know um, yeah brilliant thank you very much for your time today Stephen. that was fantastic well thanks for listening folks and um you know i've been doing this for a long time uh professor got 31 years ago whatever the decade ahead is looking set to be the most exciting time i've ever seen and i absolutely can't wait it's in the hands of the kids they've picked up the baton they've escaped <laughs> we don't we don't know where they're going but i'm running like hell to keep up with them and it's just the most exhilarating time brilliant thank you very much Stephen. <laughs>
Thanks to Stephen for sharing his fascinating and innovative suggestions. Please visit his website, heppel.net, to discover more about his ideas and insights. Compounding is a very common way that new words and phrases are created in English. In this episode of the Green Glossary, our partners at Oxford University Press explain the process for doing this by looking at a climate-related phrase which is in wide usage, carbon footprint. The Green Glossary The Green Glossary Brought to you by Oxford University Press Hello, my name's Rosamond Irons and I'm an editor involved in revising the Oxford English Dictionary. Like a lot of terms to do with sustainability, carbon footprint doesn't have a particularly long history. It's modelled on earlier terms, such as environmental footprint, for which the earliest evidence we found so far is from 1979, and ecological footprint from 1992. This quite abstract and metaphorical use of footprint may in turn derive from a cluster of earlier 20th century uses of the word, broadly meaning the area occupied or affected by something and hence it comes to mean impact. Our first evidence for carbon footprint comes from the late 1990s, but it seems to have been popularised around 2005 in a public relations campaign run ironically by the oil giant BP. In it, they acknowledged that it was an unfamiliar term. What on earth is a carbon footprint? They asked, before going on to provide a definition, and then inviting individuals to calculate their individual or household impact in terms of emissions. Some parts of that campaign used text laid out in the shape of a footprint to reinforce that metaphor, and perhaps to give the problem a human dimension, or, it might be argued, to deflect it from big corporations onto individuals. Greenwash or not, it seems to have captured the public imagination, because we see the same metaphor occurring in many other languages. For instance, Spanish huella de carbono, French empreinte carbone, and German CO2 fußabdruck. The image of a footprint has continued to lend itself nicely to graphics that can be used to engage an audience with what's quite an invisible and intangible concept, and perhaps helps to make it a bit more accessible to a non-scientific audience. We'll come back to the use of metaphors and how they can help to get a message across, or not, in another episode. In addition to using an image as well as words to get the concept across, part of the success of the term carbon footprint may be that it manages to contain a lot of meaning in a small linguistic package. And I thought it would be interesting to unpick that a bit. So carbon footprint is an example of a compound noun, which is a very common way of forming new terms in English. It allows us to put two nouns together, generally with the first one modifying the second one so it's functioning more like an adjective, to create something that's often more than the sum of its parts. It's a way that English has to avoid the need for longer phrases. Some languages that don't tend to form compounds in this way vary between noun phrases with a genitive construction and nouns modified with an adjective. For example, in Italian, which is the language I'm most familiar with after English, you find both impronta di carbonio, which literally means footprint of carbon, and impronta carbonica, which uses an adjective, so it's something like carbonic footprint. That said, in Italian, the English carbon footprint is probably just as common, if not commoner, maybe because it's more usual to refer to carbon dioxide as anidride carbonica rather than diossido di carbonio. 
Now, Carbon Footprint uses another device to convey more meaning in a concise way, because carbon is being used to stand for something like carbon dioxide and other carbon compounds in the form of gases that contribute to global warming, which is obviously a bit of a mouthful and doesn't lend itself easily to forming compounds. In another episode, we discuss a similar example of shorthand going on with some compounds of climate, where it's used to mean climate change. So, for example, a climate denier is not someone who denies that climate is happening, but someone who denies that climate change is happening. Although it comes at the potential expense of comprehension, because it could be misunderstood to mean the element carbon rather than carbon dioxide, or carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, linguistic efficiency has contributed to the success of this use of carbon. And in fact, you can see evidence of the term for the element carbon coming to have this wider meaning in many other languages. For example, Spanish, huella de carbono. The French, empreinte carbone, is perhaps influenced even more strongly by English, because carbone, in empreinte carbone, is a noun functioning as a modifier of the first noun. It will be interesting to investigate whether the global dominance of English is influencing the formation of compound nouns in languages that don't traditionally do this as often as English. For instance, I've noticed that in Italian, the greenhouse effect is often referred to as l'effetto serra, rather than, say, l'effetto di serra. Coming back to English, we find that in the late 20th century, this use of carbon starts to become very productive. For example, we get carbon emissions, carbon sink, carbon offsetting, carbon tax, carbon neutral, etc. And while a lot of compounds, like carbon footprint, have to do with defining the problems underlying climate change, increasingly we're seeing coinages referring to possible solutions. For example, we're currently monitoring terms for new technologies such as carbon capture and carbon scrubbing. This pattern of productivity often occurs with compounds. Once the usefulness of the first element in its modifying use has been established in one or two cases, other uses start clustering around them and creating a sort of family of related compounds. There are plenty of examples of this happening, and we can see that this helps to tie together various bits of the sustainability conversation. For example, climate, in words such as climate change and climate emergency, also links to others such as climate justice, climate refugee and climate sceptic, while greenhouse in greenhouse effect is later joined by greenhouse gas. Carbon, in this sense, turns up not just as the first element, but also as the second element in compounds such as low carbon and zero carbon. Another example of a group of compounds in the world of climate activism are those linked by having strike as their second element. We have climate strike and school strike, which recall each other not only semantically, but also link historically to earlier instances of non-violent protest, found in compounds such as hunger strike or rent strike. The second element of carbon footprint creates a relationship with another family of compounds, such as environmental or ecological footprint, and later footprints modelled on these, such as water footprint, which we date to 2002, and others which we're monitoring, such as land footprint and plastic footprint. I think the way that compounding creates this web of interrelated words and mental associations is quite powerful, and you can have a lot of fun tracing the ways different words are linked by compounding within the ecosystem of English. The Climate Connection
My name is Steve. I work in Thailand with grade two students. In science, we were speaking about global warming and recycling. And in one of the lessons on English, we were speaking about music. And I decided that the kids could make a class band and practice words like hit and play and strike and so on. But we decided that we would make our instruments out of recycled materials. So the children collected recycled materials like bottles and sticks and so on. And they, they made instruments out of whatever that it was that they had. So they had shakers and drums. And together we made a, a class song and recorded it and sent it home to the parents. And the kids really loved playing the music with the instruments that they'd made. And I, I don't think that the recycling message really was the focus, but there was some sensitivity of the usefulness of recycled materials as a way of, of having fun and playing. And I think that that worked quite well with the children. Connection. That's all for this episode of The Climate Connection. For show notes, bonus material and previous episodes, please visit the show website www.britishcouncil.org slash climate hyphen connection. Join us next time for episode 6, Global Schooling, in which we discuss how educational institutions can minimise their carbon footprints. Until then... Goodbye. The climate connection. La connexion climatique. Die Klimakonnektivität. La connexion climatica. I'm sitting next to Chris and Bull No one wants to do that, no. Nobody wants to do that, and he's had that cardigan on for the last two terms. For the purposes you know, of the tape, the, I don't know how Stephen can know that, but it is true, even though we are <laughs> doing this on Zoom. Yeah, no, he's looking bashfully elegant, I might say. Yeah, but... <laughs> I'm busy mixing gunpowder here on the desk, you know, because <laughs> there's a large space rocket behind me, which we'll be going once we got the mixture right, you know, we'll be going. The Climate Connection.